Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. I want to talk to you today about Winston Churchill. Now, I know I've talked about Winston Churchill a great many times before, but it's fascinating to me as I watch the articles and the, the leadership journals and so on, how Winston Churchill is coming back into fashion, not just for the usual things, not just for the great speeches and the jaunty cigar and the, and the, the, you know, the way that he uh, led the West in the great Titanic battles with Nazis and things of this nature. Um, instead, it is because Winston Churchill is beginning to be seen as an archetypical leader in times of crisis. Now, that phrase is actually on the title of one of my books, so I'm, I'm very intrigued that people are seeing him in this way. But there are actually seminars, entire um, uh, continuing education training programs in the corporate realm, um, and I'm doing a lot of speeches and a lot of trainings myself about Winston Churchill as a leader in time of crisis, because crisis leadership is different than uh, leadership at other, other times. And uh, so it's, it's an important thing to consider in advance, because obviously once a crisis hits, uh, you're going to do things out of a default. You're going to do things out of, a, out of a kind of a conditioned response. So you have to condition those responses in advance. And Churchill was so amazingly successful. Uh, he took leadership uh, numerous times, just as a country, as his country, and then the world was in crisis. Uh, that scholars are going back, writers are going back, leadership activists and coaches and trainers are going back and paying attention to how Churchill led and how he led specifically in time of crisis. So I want to offer just a brief list here of some of the things that Churchill did because I think they are uh, at least the be- this is at least the beginning of a list of what we might call the steps or the the conditions, the the skills uh, of crisis leadership. You have to remember that Winston Churchill was in and out of favor in British politics for many, many decades. Uh, He had come into Parliament uh, right about the time of World War I. He ended up being First Lord of the Admiralty during uh, World War I. Um, he, He was very much in charge of the British Navy and helped to fashion it and prepare it for war. Uh, but during the war, he recommended some policies, particularly in the Dardanelles. He fell out of fashion. He essentially resigned. He ended up going to Belgium and sort of being near the front himself during World War I. Came back into British politics and uh, got back into Parliament, of course, but he, but he fell out of favor. He was warning, issuing too many heated warnings about the Nazis. Uh, he had become a voice people wouldn't hear anymore. They didn't hear him as prophet. They, they heard him as crazy man, imbalanced. Um, and so he wasn't much in favor. What's interesting is the way he roared back into favor uh, as the Nazis arose on the continent and people began to realize that Churchill had been right. And so just at the beginning of uh, World War II, uh, the king asked Churchill to form a government and Churchill took over a country in crisis, a military in crisis, and a war uh, well underway. What were the things that Churchill did? What were the steps that he, that he took? What, did he, what, what were the practical things that he did uh, to respond to the crisis? Well, first of all, he defined the crisis. Uh, one, one of the things that a leader does is define uh, what must be done, define the vision, define, define the battle. Uh, if two, two forces are opposing each other, who are, what are these forces? Who are these people? Um, it, it's a, there's a huge difference between a people going to war, for example, between those uh, against those they believe to be their distant cousins, uh, and again, between those against those who have absorbed a very evil philosophy and are intending to do evil in the world. Uh, 
This was a point that Churchill made. Uh, people in England, people on the continent may have come from common ethnic stock, he would say, but Nazism uh, is ancient paganism reborn. And that's what he did. He actually painted Nazism as paganism, and he painted the Western powers as at least coming from a Christian orientation if they weren't, you know, fiery Christians themselves. And so with that kind of language, he defined World War II not as a battle between aggrieved cousins, not as a war between people who were fighting over property or, or fighting, as some said, the last battle of World War I, but he defined it as a battle between good and evil. He actually, he actually framed the war in a way that would rally the people he wanted to rally. So one of the first things that a leader does is define the nature of the battle. And the second principle of this is almost always this involves some sense of destiny. Uh, people do their best when they are told, uh, you are here for such a time as this. You, are, you were born for this fight. You are destined for this. Uh, we will survive. We will prevail. Uh, you know, maybe they don't use the language God is with us, but they at least, the leaders at least appeal to the innate strength and heritage of the people, and they assure them that the fight they're fighting is one they are destined to fight and destined to win. That has always been in the highest art of leaders. And so this issue of destiny comes to play. You have come to this moment, you are here, not by accident, but because you have a role to play. That, that level of understanding of destiny is always a factor. So Churchill defines it. Churchill summons people to it as a destined uh, challenge in their lives. And then he begins to change the culture of the British government and of the military at the time. Uh, for example, uh, he began to find that bureaucratic language had crept into the culture of British government. It was something that had always plagued them. And you, you wouldn't have uh, some, for example, he found that it was as simple as this. Uh, you wouldn't have the British government in a document describing something as a, a man's house. They wouldn't say a man's house. They would say his economic domicile, you know, resident. Uh, it, I believe it was a six word phrase simply for house. Um, and so no, no one like the British government at the time uh, had been so adept at larding documents, larding of official language in such a way that it was barely understandable, certainly not to people who were, uh, you know, not, you know, educated at Oxford and, and Cambridge. So Churchill wanted to mobilize the masses. Churchill wanted to speak plainly. He wanted uh, language to be used that uh, would lead to action. And so he insisted on a simplifying of language. He required all new terms to be passed by his office. And he would check, he would run a line through a six word name for a tank, and he would simply come up with the name tank. Um, or there was a long bureaucratic phrase for what we now know as chaff. Uh, the, the metal strips that planes, of course, now it's done electronically, but the metal strips that were thrown out of airplanes to distract radar. Churchill just said, no, let's call it chaff. He completely made the word up. Nobody had ever used it before. But he said, I'm not going to have a 16-word, uh, big old long-syllabled words uh, to describe this simple thing called chaff. We need something simple. We need something people can understand. And so he changed culture by changing language. He also changed culture by insisting upon action. One of the first things Winston Churchill did when he went into office was he had a notepad printed uh, and each piece of paper said action this day. And then underneath was his signature and then the words the prime minister. So he would actually issue these things by hand like a doctor issuing prescriptions. And these were things he wanted done that day. He was trying to knock the bureaucracy 
that the British government and British military had become in the head by saying, look, we are not going to win this war by working at the normal pace. You don't just put in the, the, the paperwork and then check on it six months later and, you know, etc. He said, this is action for this day. And it's documented by some uh, analysts and management analysts and so on that Churchill so shifted the culture that tasks that on average would take six to eight weeks were sometimes being done in half a day. It was always possible for them to be done in half a day. They simply had never been asked to do it that fast. And with the press of war and the insistence of the prime minister, things began to change and they began to change dramatically. Um, so this, this culture, this action this day, this, this will be done now. No, I, we will not wait a week. We will not wait in three weeks. We, want, we need action now. Uh, there's another uh, tool that Churchill used to change the culture, and it's one that we have to use in time of crisis, and that was accountability. Uh, Churchill insisted uh, when he issued an order, he also issued a time at which he wanted to report back as to progress. He expected the job to be done in 24 hours. He would want the person he'd given the order to to return to him and tell him that the job was done or uh, give him a good reason why. So tight accountability, which usually in times of crisis goes away. You lose accountability, the stress of war, the range of the battlefield, the disorder of ordering and you know quartermastering and all of the sort of things that you have to be involved in. Uh, accountability changes people, the rotating positions, the military shifting itself all over the world. Accountability tends to go away. Churchill said, no, keep accountability tight. You will get back to me. You will explain why this is not being done. And therefore, he shifted and accelerated the entire process of the war. And while we often talk about the American uh, technological and mechanical output during World War II, it really was the British ability to mobilize rapidly that first kept Hitler at bay uh, when Britain was very, very much under threat. And then I, th I think the, the, the other factor that is so critical uh, in Churchill's crisis management uh, is that he kept the issue of the prime objective in mind. He said, what we are here to do is to win every engagement. We are not here to prepare for the post-war world yet. We are not here to, uh, to do the other things that men might think we're here to do. We're not here to build up an army that will last for a thousand years. We are here to win each battle. What is our policy? Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory against all terror. Victory. How are we going to do that? We're going to fight. And so he kept the objective. He kept the main thing, the main thing, as they say these days. He kept the objective in view. And then finally, uh, Churchill constantly, constantly spoke of the certainty of victory. We will win this. People will look back and say, if, we, uh, if, if humanity should last a thousand years, they will say, this was our finest hour. In other words, Churchill knew that people needed to have words living in their souls that would uh, constantly incite them forward, constantly feed them with courage, constantly cause them to um, advance courageously against enemies and to do the things and play their role that they were called to play. He knew that people needed to have words living in their minds. They needed to have phrases they could repeat to each other that would encourage each other. And so he kept giving assurances of victory. The final thing I would mention is this, that Churchill was a master at embodying his message. When bombs were falling on London, Churchill made sure that the press watched him go to the top of the buildings being bombed and he would sit on the chimneys and watch the bombs fall. What was he saying? 
We will not be afraid. The British Bulldog will not be afraid. We will see this thing happen. We will answer it violently. We will prevail against our enemies, and we will not cower. I will, he never went down into a bomb shelter. He always watched bombings from the top of a hill, a tree, standing on his car, or on the top of a building. And the British people loved it because he became the symbol of courage. All of this is essential in a time of crisis when people are running hairy scary, they're running around fearful, they need to be aligned, they need to be wedded to a task and a vision, they need to have tight accountability, uh, and they, they need to have an assurance of victory uh, from their leaders living in their souls. Now, we could talk about 20 other things that Winston Churchill uh, did, but this is the beginning of a Churchillian crisis leadership and many in our society are returning to it given the challenges that we face. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times best-selling author and popular speaker who coaches and advises leaders worldwide. To learn more about Stephen, log on to stephenmansfield.tv. The Stephen Mansfield Podcast is produced by Isaac Darnell, who also wrote and performed the Rockin' Podcast theme song. This is a Chartwell Literary Group production. Chartwell is ingeniously led by Beverly Darnell Mansfield. As a result, all rights are reserved. For more information, contact us through stephenmansfield.tv.